Isaiah chapter 27. So, uh, like always, we'll get a little bit of a running start to this. And beginning, as we talked before, beginning in chapter 24, going up until chapter 27, uh, is what they call Isaiah's Apocalypse, meaning that this is where Isaiah takes this chunk of scripture and talks about uh, kind of latter days. And does anybody remember what our key word or our key phrase was that often introduces these verses? In that day. Hey, the back of the class is doing great. Um, in that day. So we have this, this section, um, chapters 24 through, through uh, 27, where it talks about in that day, these, these future times, and we're going to see that. And just by way of review, um, just to walk through some of this, chapter 24, uh, let's just flip back there and we'll just look at a, a verse. Um, I could pick almost any verse. Uh, let's look at verse, um, verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. Verse 12, desolation is left in the city. The gate is battered to ruins. And we're going to talk more about cities as we go along. So we have this, this period of time which uh, is thought to be uh, a picture of the Great Tribulation uh, when there will just be devastation throughout the whole earth. Chapter 25, we see... A couple of things here. Uh, we see the contrast between this fortified city. If you look at uh, chap uh, verse 2 of chapter 25, For thou hast made a city into a heap, a fortified city into ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. So we see the contrast there between this place of judgment in verse 6 then we go on down, uh, I'm sorry, uh, judgment in verse um, 2 and going down to verse 6 where it says, And the Lord of hosts will ho prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. So we see the contrast there between um, uh, judgment and now also a picture of hope. And these great verses where, uh, like in verse 7, And on this mountain he will swallow up the coverings which is over all the peoples, even the veil stretched over all the nations he will swallow up death for all time and the lord god will wipe tears away from all faces um, again this contrast between uh, judgment this fortified city that was uh, was the recipient of that and then uh, what's going to happen with god's people as he reestablishes the way he wants things to be with this kind of figurative language of of uh, being on the mountain with him. Chapter 26, which we looked at last week, it, again we have this picture of a city. Um, and this time uh, it's a different city. Um, it says uh, in verse 1, we have a strong city, with walls and ramparts, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. So uh, for the, the faithful, uh, this city has been prepared uh, so that God can gather people together. And we have this song, uh, verse 4, we sing about God in the Lord who is our everlasting rock. We close out 
the latter part of the chapter with resurrection language. Uh, verse 19, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. But as we get to verse 20, again we have this ebb and flow of prophecy. We have the beauty of how things are going to be with the resurrection. And now Isaiah shifts back and says, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place. As I was reading this again this morning, I, I had this picture, and I don't know if it's from a sitcom. Surely this never happened at my house. But you could almost picture a mom, and there's just arguments coming from upstairs, and the kids are squabbling. And so she comes to the bottom of the stairs and says something like, don't make me come up there. You know, and I just kind of see this, you know, behold, the Lord is about to come up there. It's about, he's about to come out from his place. And the, the purpose of that is to set things aright, to, to mete out justice and punishment. Uh, and then, of course, the Lord's going to do that too. Uh, behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place. And this transitions directly into verse 1 of chapter 27. In fact, many commentators think it's better to think of verse 1 of chapter 27 as connected to the last verse of chapter 26. So I'll read those together. For behold, this is verse 21 of chapter 26. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her shame. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. The, the word or the verb to punish shows up in both verses, uh, and that's kind of helps you connect the thinking there uh, that that is one argument that these verses probably go together and then just the the thought uh, seems to go together in that day the Lord will punish Leviathan the Lord has come out of his place and is going to punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent um, Leviathan uh, this concept of, of Leviathan uh, calls upon uh, and I, we'll talk about this just a little bit. Back in the day, in the days of uh, the Canaanites and that region, there was stories, mythology, fairy tales, if you will. Uh, and one of the common fairy tales was uh, about Leviathan, who was a sea serpent, who was going to... Uh, resist and be at war with the creator of the world. So Isaiah uses that language that um, would, would call to mind this, this picture. Now, it's not too much of a stretch to picture that this is 
Satan. This is the personification of evil. Just as that, just as that character in the fable uh, kind of represented uh, the conflict there. Uh, here, Leviathan is called uh, as as a picture uh, in the way that we might we might think of someone who's strong as Hercules. That doesn't mean we believe that Hercules was a real partial God who existed and no, it just means that calls to mind that that picture. Um, just like we might refer to uh, uh, the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood or you know that calls to mind images. So here we have this image of Leviathan and God punishing this fleeing serpent but there's meaning attached to that of course and that meaning is punishing Satan and, and all of the evil that's tied in with that. And of course, we have Satan referred to as a serpent uh, throughout Scripture in both the Old and the New Testament. God is going to put things right. And that's the final blow there. So let's move on to verse 2 which starts this new section. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment, lest anyone damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. Or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout. And they will fill the whole world with fruit. Verse 6 explains what verses 2 through 5 is talking about. Here we have this picture of a vineyard. A vineyard of wine. Sing of it. So hold your finger here, and let's go back to chapter 5. Those of you who were here then, we studied a different vineyard story. And again, it's, it's no accident that we have these in contrast because it shows the difference between a vineyard gone bad and a vineyard restored. So let's, let's look at this. Again, uh, the point is made uh, by commentators, chapters 24 through 27 um, are often thought of as a somewhat of a song. So it's interesting in chapter 5 where it starts off in the same way. It says, let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved coming, concerning rather his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Verse 2, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So, now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled to the ground. 
and I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up, and I will charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, behold, a cry of distress. So compare that back to chapter 27, where instead of a picture of a vineyard that's been abandoned, we have in verse 3 where it's, the Lord says, I am its keeper. I am its keeper. Instead of, as it says in chapter 5, 6, uh, I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. It says in verse 3, I water it every moment. Instead of the briars and thorns coming up on it as evidence of punishment and neglect, you look back at verse 4, and now we see evidence where God's almost wishing that there were briars and thorns so he could fight them off, so he could defend his vineyard. In verse 7 of chapter 5, it says that there was bloodshed and a cry of distress, whereas in verse 5 of chapter 27, it's talking about a place of peace. And then a final contrast, instead of trampled ground that has been laid waste, we see in verse 6, blossoming and fruitfulness. A real contrast there that, that the vineyard that was talked about before, God's, God's not forgotten about that. There's still restorative work that has to be done, that will be done. Look closely at verse 6 of chapter 27. It says, In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Um, that's the kind of the explanation there, that that the day is going to come, that Israel is finally going to um, meet its full potential. Now, to some degree, and I guess depending on how you look at it, um, the Jacob taking root, you could say, certainly see Jesus in that role and ultimately has a critical role to play in the ultimate blossoming and fruitfulness of Israel. But uh, it, it does seem to look to the future when when Israel is going to finally reach its full potential there. So verse 7. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? Thou didst contend with them by banishing them, by driving them away, with his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. So here we have some questions, kind of rhetorical questions. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Almost sounds like a tongue twister. Um, 
it's a rhetorical question saying, uh, how, has, how has God dealt with the people of Israel who have not been uh, obedient, who have been worshiping idols and so forth? And it's, it's saying, did, did God treat Israel the same way that he has treated Israel's enemies? The answer is, to that rhetorical question, the expectation is that the answer is no. He hasn't dealt in the same way. With Israel's enemies, we have utter destruction. But with Israel, it says, no, he's, he's, he's driven them away. He's taken them to exile. Um, there's been some pain there. But he has not dealt with them in the same way. Um, one commentator put it this picture of this solitary city that um, is eventually referred to in verse 10 but it says the solitary city re remains a quintessential symbol of earthly power and oppression in contrast to the divine punishment of Israel in the past, which was measured, disciplinary, and directed toward Israel's ultimate redemption, the inhabitants of the destroyed people remain a people without discernment who will experience no favor from God. Let's look at verse 9. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven, and this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin when he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when ashram and incense altars will not stand. So one of the, one of the biggest problems that was, was really, in fact, I guess it's for all of us, it's our ultimate problem, and that is idolatry. Um, there was uh, clear and open adoption of idolatry by the people of both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah, more in the north, but certainly it crept into the south as well, uh, where they were raising up these high places. They were building uh, places of, of idol worship. And, and here we say where God says, you know, this is how I'm going to know when, when the repentance so forth is complete, and that's when all forms of idolatry have been banished. Verse 10, For the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze, and it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, the Maker will not have compassion on them, and their Creator will not be gracious to them. Um, when when um, uh, Jerusalem was ultimately destroyed, uh, it was laid waste, and this happened 580-something B.C. Um, and to be honest, I'm not super sure if this passage refers to then or 
if it reflects back to the time yet to come of the Great tribula Tribulation, or as is certainly possible that it refers to both things in view and the parallels between those two. But again, we have this picture that uh, there's a city and it's got it's fortified, it's got the walls, but it's got everything it needs but faithful people. And therefore, it's, it's left to waste. So let's move on down, and we'll close out this section here. Verse 12. And it will come about in that day that the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. And it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So here we have a picture um, of judgment, this threshing. When it says, from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, in other words, this is the full extent of what would have been considered the promised land. And it says, you will be gathered up one by one. You can't mistake that this language is referring to individual people. So certainly there's big prophecy language about countries and tribes and all this, but, but this, this gathering up one by one from probably the symbolism there is from all parts of the earth that there'll be threshing and then there'll be the gathering together. And in verse 13, it says, a great trumpet will be blown. And it says, there were people perishing in Assyria, there were people scattered in the land of Egypt, and they're going to come all together, and then we have this reference again to the holy mountain. So, in this set of verses, the in that day, seems to refer to the final dealing of God with the nation of Israel. So, let's look briefly, if there is such a thing, to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. We get the context in the first couple of verses. It says, And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Which is kind of funny, right? Like Jesus didn't know the temple buildings. I don't know what that really means. Hey, Jesus, look at the temple. Okay. Um, and he answered them and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And of course, there was a rather immediate fulfillment of that prophecy uh, about 40 years later uh, with the destruction of Israel by the Romans. But he's, 
He goes on and, and it says, and in, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so he's on the Mount of Olives. So the next several chapters are called the Olivet Discourse, the, the series of sayings um, that, that he said on the Mount of Olives. And he goes through, and, and we hear he basically describes what's going to happen uh, during the time of the tribula tribulation. And he makes reference to Daniel, and he makes reference to a lot of prophecy there that you know we could spend weeks and weeks on, and, and maybe we should at some point. But move on down to verse 29. says, but immediately after the tribulation of the, those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now, I don't remember the exact verse, but we've covered verses in Isaiah that talk about, you know, it's almost like the ultimate example of God's power is his power over the heavenly bodies and over the physical part of the earth. That's a very common demonstration of like, we talked about the earthquakes last week. You know, if you just want to think how powerful God is, all these stars and planets and all that sort of stuff, yeah, you know, he's got that too. He can make them do whatever he wants. Verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And verse 31, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. A great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So flip back to Isaiah 27:13, and here we have a great trumpet and then we have a gathering of people who will ultimately come to worship the Lord on the holy mountain the gathering of his elect so these verses seem to to really have a lot in common right and I think it's no real stretch to to see that that they're talking about the same event. So here we have Isaiah prophesying way into the future and talking about the same day that Jesus was talking about 2,000 years ago that is at least 2,000 years hence um, because it's still future for us. You know, time means nothing to God in the sense of it's no, it's just all things are seen equally. You know, we're the only people that are really affected by time. So that wraps up chapter 27. So let's talk about just a couple of things here and to highlight. Um, we haven't in this section, at least, I haven't gotten super into the weeds as far as um, 
saying, you know, this is prophecy about this particular time and trying to connect all that together. Uh, I've tried to mainly focus on, you know, what can we take from this right now, right, for this week. And, and as we'll talk in a minute about, you know, our thing, what does it say about God and man and trying to pull that out. But um, there was a good example in this chapter of uh, those that, that really um, have an ear for prophecy. I'll put it that way. Um, in the New Testament, we hear, we hear about people with a gift of prophecy, and sometimes we take that to mean the gift of telling the future, which it kind of can mean that. Uh, sometimes it can mean the gift of just telling the truth, of kind of discernment and interpreting events and, and, um, and that type of prophecy. But I think there are people that are probably gifted that have an, an ear for when the Bible speaks about prophecy. And, and um, again, you have to... Uh, you have to uh, not go crazy, so I don't know how a good way to say this. There are some people who maybe extrapolate maybe beyond my comfort zone. But here's an example which I think is kind of interesting. If you look back to verse 1 of this chapter, it says, and that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. So just as an example, so um, one scholar with this ear of prophecy has said, well, Leviathan the fleeing serpent is referring to the river Tigris. The river Tigris apparently flows very swiftly. And here we have the, the fleeing serpent or the, the rapidly fleeing serpent, I think some translations. And he said, so this would have referred to Tigris is the northern of the two rivers in that area. And so the more northern kingdom was the kingdom of Assyria. So say, well, this referred to the kingdom of Assyria. And then it says, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. Well, it turns out the partner river, the river Euphrates, has a more meandering, twisted course. And then finally it says, and will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And uh, they say, well, this might be a reference to um, the river that flows into the sea, which is the river Nile uh, down in Egypt. And that kind of parallels this region referred to in verse 12. Um, so I thought, okay, well, does this, you know, what does this really mean? Well, it doesn't really mean anything except to say that um, ultimately, even though God used it for good, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and even some of the stuff coming out of Egypt were forces that were against um, the nation of Israel and were evil, and ultimately Satan was behind all of those um, uh, evil regimes. Um, and the Lord, you know, has and will smite uh, all of those oppressors. So I, I just thought that was a good a good example of how um, some people can can read the same words as I do and kind of attach different meanings to it and and you know the Bible's full of symbolism and we know that when we read prophetic language 
we probably at least ought to be open to maybe the concept that there's more there than is there in literal form, right? So um, I think this is why we always, as we study, we ask the Holy Spirit to kind of keep us on track, you know, because you might read, and this not just applies to prophecy, but you might read the same verse, you know, multiple times over the course of 10 or 20 years, and there may be one day when, when the Lord uses that verse to say a totally different thing through that verse. And some people say, you know, I don't even think I've read that verse before. And, and sometimes it's, I don't think I've read that verse that way before. Um, so just a, a little commentary there on uh, prophecy language and, and kind of allowing the Holy Spirit to tune our ears about these things. And um, uh, I won't say any more about that, uh, about that particular example. I just thought it was uh, a, a nice example of how uh, some people can sometimes tend to, to raise some other ideas that I wouldn't have thought of. All right. So we've got a few minutes. What do we learn about man from chapter 27? What do we learn about man from this passage? All right. So what are some of the same things we're hearing? Mike says it's the same things over and over. So what are we hearing over and over? We're hearing they get away from God. We hear there's idolatry. How does God feel about idolatry? He, can't handle it. he doesn't like it, right? <laughs> he really doesn't like it. Um, we, we, you know, you got to admit the Bible's pretty consistent. God doesn't like idolatry. Um, it puts us on the wrong side of Him. What else? Nobody can escape judgment. His judgment is widespread, as Pat said. Nobody is going to get away from this. Nobody is going to get away from this. What else? God's patience. He just keeps warning and warning through his prophets. So, absolutely. So that's a good transition. What do we learn about God in this passage? He is so patient. He is so patient and he always has a way, right? He always has a way to be reconciled. There's a way of, of reconciliation. There's a way, you know, to make peace with him, as it's referred here. Uh, I, I would agree. I wrote down, as far as man, just to wrap that up, I wrote down basically the same thing. The chronic problem of man is not being at peace with God. We, we just pick our idol and, and want from that idol what we should want from God. I mean, that's one of our biggest problems. Um, something else about man, I think we can say, you know, our best is yet to come, right? I don't know about your average day, but my average day is not frolic on, on the mountain, right? <laughs> that's not my average day. Um, you know, I'm not sure I frolicked in quite a while in, in, in general, but, um, um, but that's not the average day. We have aches and pains and groans and work and, you know, bills and stuff that is not good. So our best is yet to come. And, uh, 
it made me think of that phrase. I guess it's kind of a cliche, but I think there's plenty of truth in it that says, for the Christian, you've heard this before, this life is as close to hell as we'll ever get. And for the non-Christian, this is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. You know, so um, I, that's great. I'm glad there's a feast. I'm glad there's a mountain. Uh, I'm glad there are things that we can look forward to. And, and God is gracious to tell us about that, right? We, he doesn't just say, uh, he doesn't just leave us hanging as to who's going to win, right? We all like the end of the story. Um, what else is, does it say about God in this passage? Who said, he loves us. He loves us. How does he demonstrate his love to us in this passage? It's all about the vineyard, right? He's our provider. He's our protector. He's going to nourish us. He's going to establish the limits of the garden. Um, We also see that again, back to the idolatry thing, he is worried, or not worried, he is uh, devoted to the concept of disciplining his children and purifying us. And when it says, you know, did, did he contend with them, you know, in the same way as the other people? No. There was a measured hand there, but, but God, God punished them. Not to be mean, but for correction. And that's, that's who God is. God certainly cares about the individual. Um, all right, I guess we can. Uh, I guess we can stop there. Any final comments about this little section? Well, as you continue to read, um, you know, I don't know if you have the ear for prophecy, but. Continue to ask yourself those questions. You know, what's God saying about me? What's God saying about himself as we go through these passages? And uh, I guess uh, Dad will pick up next week. All right, final thoughts, comments? Finish a little early. All right, let's pray then. Father, I thank you for who you are, that you are the keeper of a vineyard that includes us, that we can take comfort in knowing that we'll be a part of that, that we can feast with you on your mountain, that you've prepared a place for us. And Father, we also are reminded of the fact that we still have our idols and we still look for satisfaction in places other than you. And And Father, through the Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd continue to convict us and to call us out on those things so that we can have the fellowship with you that that you want and that that we need. Father, we thank you for Jesus who um, is our way to enjoy all of these things, who is our way to be grafted into your vine. In his name I pray, amen.